Amen. And so we continue uh, by uh, turning to Acts chapter 2, which uh, Rachel has uh, read to us. Now, eventually, we will get to the end of Acts chapter 2, but we've still got quite a lot of, uh, of, uh, of wonderful verses to look at, and uh, we need to, uh, to do justice for this incredible um, event that took place, the beginning of the church, the founding of the church, the birth of the church, if you want to uh, use words like that. And if you can remember three weeks ago, and I know a lot's happened in the last three weeks, and I'm struggling to even remember three weeks ago, but if you remember, we spoke about the fact that uh, Peter stands up and he preaches here in Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 14 to 39. And what we've been doing last week, this week, and then again next week is listening to different explanations that Peter had as to what happened at this first Pentecost occasion of the church, the giving of the Holy Spirit. And we rejoice uh, to have heard that uh, Peter read from the prophecy of Joel. Now that might help you to remember some of the things that we had spoken about. And of course the prophecy of Joel is a fascinating section of scripture. Joel as a prophecy generally is not the easiest to read. If you want encouragement, uh, I wouldn't suggest that you turn to Joel to look for that. Although suddenly, right bang in the middle of chapter 2, you discover some incredibly important words to us. And Peter knew that they were important. In fact, he knew through the power of the Holy Spirit that they were so important that he stands up with the other 11 and he quotes from the prophecy um, of, uh, of Joel. Joel is talking about the nation of Israel in the end times in connection with the day of the Lord. However, Peter, as I say, was led by the Holy Spirit to see in the prophecy of Joel an application for the church that has been born there on that Pentecost Sunday morning. And uh, Peter, in effect, says this. He says it's that holy, same Holy Spirit that Joel was writing about that we now see is here. Okay, so that's the message that he's getting over by talking and quoting from Joel chapter 2. But he actually goes on and says more than the fact that the Holy Spirit is here. He goes on to say, the Holy Spirit is now in our midst. He talks about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so we begin to see the imperative and the explanation that he is talking about to this group of Jewish people that have stood before him. Now, it was a shock for them because the crowd that had stood before him as Peter preached the message to them. Why was it a shock? Well, because up until about 9 a.m. on the 25th ish of May, AD 33, on that first Pentecost Sunday morning, the Holy Spirit had only ever been given to a limited number of people for a limited period of time up until this occasion, as I say, on that uh, Pentecost Sunday morning. Yes, they would have heard of Joel's prophecy on many occasions. It would have been read, it would have been uh, listened to. But they had never understood exactly what was being said. Uh, now, not only would many of them understand for the first time what Joel was speaking of, but even something more exciting would happen. Some of them would experience the very things that Joel had spoken of in his prophecy many, many years beforehand. And what was that? It was this indwelling, 
the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As they confessed their sin, as they repented of their sin, as they recognized the risen Lord Jesus Christ, so the Holy Spirit would move in and live within them. So you can see that you know, this was an exciting thing that's going on. They're all stood there listening. And they're hearing what Peter is saying. And he gives authority to what he's saying by quoting from the prophets. So in other words, he takes the scriptures. And remember, our preaching should always be bringing the scriptures. We don't preach and then base or back up what we say from the scriptures. We speak from the scriptures. And so it's important. And this is what Peter is doing. And he says, look, this is what the prophet Joel spoke about. And now these people are not just hearing this, but they are also experiencing the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling them. Complete, completely uh, different to what they had begun to understand. Imagine what it was that they were hearing and as they're listening to this. So this is Peter's first explanation of what happened. The Spirit had come. And so this morning, briefly, we want to consider Peter's next explanation, uh, where he explains how it happened. So we've considered what happened, the Spirit has come, and then today we're just briefly going to look at how it happened, how the Holy Spirit came. And we see the explanation in the verses that uh, Rachel read uh, so lovely for us uh, a few moments ago in verses 22 to 35. But I would encourage you, of course, to go away and to read this chapter again uh, and to reread it because it is so important that we understand and grasp what is going on here. Now, we all know that news travels fast. Have you noticed that? It's incredible how uh, you can be involved in something. And before the words are finished coming out of your mouth, it's like everybody else knows about it already. Have you ever had that experience where you talk to someone else and they tell you things that you haven't even thought of yet? And yet, there's news that gets uh, um, um, traveling around and so on. Now, of course, a lot of it is not necessarily true. A lot of it is made up. Sometimes people create things to cause problems. But the concept that I want to talk about here very, very briefly is the fact that news travels fast. Perhaps today, news travels faster than ever before. Social media has done its best to ensure that news of any sort, whether it's true or whether it's false, but it travels. And before you know it, everybody knows what's going on. There are no secrets left anymore remember google never forgets okay we might but google doesn't and so we discover that it travels very very quickly but even before social media came along news traveled very quickly in the small villages that i grew up in in somerset along the polden hills uh, there was three or four of them uh, nestled at the bottom of the hills overlooking the somerset levels well doesn't it sound lovely it's beautiful okay and news traveled incredibly fast in fact, it was in, in, in remarkable how something that happened in one village would end up traveling through all the different villages and, uh, and it was there. <coughs> gossip. Gossip travels very fast, doesn't it? I'm not going to ask for anybody to put their hands up on this particular point because the Bible does not speak well of gossip. I need to remind us all of this. Gossip is something we shouldn't be involved in. In fact, Proverbs 20 verse 19 says and tells us, not to associate with gossips. So be careful about this. Romans 1.29, uh, 1 Corinthians 12.20, both differentiate gossip, uh, gossip from slander and condemn it as the result of what? A depraved mind, unfitting for Christians. So we know 
that we've got to be careful, so don't do it. It's incredible how quickly and how far a rumour that hasn't got a leg to stand on can run. Now, at this point, you're meant to have a little smile because it's an attempt at humour. How fast can a rumour that hasn't got a leg to stand on, how fast can it run? And it's incredible. News travels fast in the Middle East, and probably all of the adults, all of the people that have stood before um, uh, Peter as he is preaching, probably uh, any children that were there, uh, residents, visitors alike in Jerusalem, they knew about the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Of course they would. Now it's reckoned that there was around two million people in the city at the time. It's a huge number when you think about it. But I suspect pretty well everybody knew what had happened because it was incredible what had taken place. Perhaps many in the crowd before Peter, as Peter's preaching to them, were in the crowd that shouted, crucify, crucify. Maybe they were there. When Pilate leaned over his balcony and he looks at the crowd of the people and he says, you know, who do you want me to let to release? Who do you want me to let go? I, and he'd got it all planned, hadn't he? You know, this guy, Barabbas, was, was not a good piece of work. And I guess he chose, you know, he looked down the list of those in, in the prisons. Let's go for the worst one. This has got to get Jesus off, hasn't it? He says, who do you want me to let go? Barabbas or Jesus? And of course, the crowd shouted to see that Barabbas was released. Now it's also true and fair to say that the crowd before him had probably heard the rumors of an official announcement that the small band of followers that Jesus has had, you know, at the end of the day there wasn't very many of them, but this small band of followers that Jesus had 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 somehow managed to evade the Roman guard, the chaps that had sealed the tomb, and stolen the body. You know, the rumor mill was working overtime. Because they knew the chief priests, because un un unlike the disciples, they were worried about what Jesus had said about rising within three on the third day. And so we discover that the, uh, the, 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 the chief priests and the leaders of the people, they were concerned that Jesus would keep his word. You remember in Matthew 27, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how that deceiver, what terrible words to speak about Jesus. That deceiver said that after three days I will rise, therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his, his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He's risen. Yeah, that's what their concern was. So rumors were spreading around. The chief priests and the rulers of the people were doing all they could to deal with the matter of the missing body. You see, humanly speaking, they tried to stop the resurrection. That's what their determination was. They'd asked the Romans to guard the tomb to make it secure that Jesus would not rise or would not be able to come out of the tomb. But everything they had done, everything they had tried to do had failed. The body of Jesus was gone. And now people are saying, 
He's risen. And Peter comes along and he stands in the middle of Jerusalem along with the other apostles. And he raises his voice. And what does he say? What does he do? He simply does this. He preaches the truth. Peter tells the crowd, described here in Acts chapter 2, he tells them the truth. And when we stand and when we talk and when we share the gospel with people, what is it that we're asked to do? It's to do no more than tell the truth. And Peter brings the rumors to an end. For three days in 1988, to mark Easter in the United Kingdom, the Royal Mail put the Frank mark on each letter, these words, Jesus is alive. Can you imagine Canada Post stamping every letter with the words, Jesus is alive? And it, it brings tears to my eyes to think how far my country has come since 1988. Because they would never do that now, apart from the power of God to work in them. So every letter that went out had this, these words, three words, Jesus is alive. And it ran to over 200 million letters were all franked with this mark on it. Your gas bill arrived and it has on the front, Jesus is alive. Here's an account from a newspaper at the time that spoke about this. The post office today began delivering mail bearing the postmark, Jesus is alive, throughout Great Britain. A move that Jews, humanists, the National Secular Society, and others called offensive to other beliefs. It's absolutely outrageous, said Martin Horwood, spokesman for the British Humanist Association a national organization for the non-religious. Imagine the furore, he said, if we had asked to have Jesus is dead printed on hundreds of millions of letters. We might think these things privately, but they should not be forced on everyone else in such an insensitive way, he said. Peter tells the crowd, Jesus of Nazareth, had indeed been raised from the dead. And Peter goes on and explains that the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Peter graciously gives the crowd four proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then he does something incredible. Something that even today in some churches people say, oh, you shouldn't do that. What does he do? Peter calls on all people in the crowd in front of him. He calls on all of them to believe on Jesus Christ and not just believe on him, but to be saved. Peter goes straight for the imperative. Acts 2 verse 38, Peter said to them, and you can hear the urgency in his voice, he says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And then just in case there were some that weren't listening properly, Peter decides that he has to say it again. Verse 40, and we find that Peter repeats it. Then he says this, be saved from this perverse generation. The urgency in his voice is very clear. Could Peter have spoken more clearly to the crowd? Could Peter have been more forthright in his explanation of what the people needed to do? Absolutely not. There was no ambiguity here. Peter is clear that they all needed to repent and be saved. And friends, nothing has changed. Nothing. The gospel is the same today as it has always been. Nothing has been removed. Nothing has been added. It is the same message that we need to proclaim to all people today. Repent and be saved. Now I'm going to say this as gently as I can. It's time that some of us here stop with the excuses as to why we can't listen to God speaking to us calling to us as we read his word sometimes people come to me and some of the excuses are unbelievable <laughs> well it's my mum's faith that keeps me going so what about you that's her faith what about your faith I haven't got time. That's a classic. When I'm ready, I'll, I'll, I'll talk, take it seriously. Perhaps we could meet and have a chat. But, but when I'm ready. Stop with the excuses as to why you cannot repent and experience the saving grace of God in your life right now. Here's another one. God doesn't speak to me. He seems to speak to everybody else, but he doesn't speak to me. Yes, he is speaking to you. You've just heard Rachel read his word to you. You've just read the words yourself with your own eyes as you've got the scriptures before you, perhaps. Is the Bible the word of God? Yes, it is. Is the Bible alive and effective to you right now? Yes, it is. Is the Holy Spirit active in the world today? Yes, He is. How do we know that the Holy Spirit is active in the world today? Because of Pentecost. Because Peter quoted from the Word of God. And he said, It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And just for a little exercise here this morning, take your, two, your thumb and your finger and give yourself a pinch. Not the person next to you. Give yourself a pinch. Are you flesh? It's speaking to you. Friends, in these last days, the word, the days since the coming of the Lord Jesus into the world, the Holy Spirit is being poured out. Now, you need to respond to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You need to repent to change your mind about your sin and about God and you need to turn to God now for his salvation. So what are the four proofs that Peter gives 
his listeners here in this message? Well, firstly, Peter talks about Jesus. And what better place to start than to talk about the Savior? And when we're talking to people, always come to Jesus, the person of Jesus. What better place to start, particularly for the congregation in front of Peter right there and then. The people in front of Peter knew that Jesus was a real person from the town of Nazareth. And they also knew that Jesus had performed many signs and miracles. In verse 22, Peter states, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. Peter's speaking very, very clearly to them. As you yourselves know. Peter reminds them of what they already knew. And this morning I remind you of what you already know. Some of you have had the privilege of being brought up in church-going families, not necessarily Christian families, but at least going to church. And in the privilege that you have had, you have heard the Word of God read to you. You have been able to understand a lot but perhaps not enough. But you already know, and this morning I remind you of that, it's quite possible that some of the people that Jesus had healed were there in that crowd. The congregation before Peter knew who Jesus was. They had heard him preach. They had seen him heal people. They had witnessed the way that he told the truth. Even when the truth was going to get him into trouble, he still told the truth. He said he is God because it was the truth. They tried to murder him because he told the truth. You know, the people had seen the life of Jesus. They had watched him. They had even seen Jesus raise people from the dead. Jesus didn't hide in a corner. He had lived openly in front of the people. Uh, remember the account of the Apostle Paul in front of King Agrippa, which we find in Acts chapter 26. And Paul said to the king, it's a fascinating little section of scripture if you look it up. He says, I am convinced that none of these things escapes the king's attention since this happened, since these things happened, were not done in a corner. Okay? I am convinced that none of these things escaped his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. Neat in the hook. I don't know if that was anywhere near correct, but you might have understood it. I'd always thought the hook of Holland was because of the shape of the country, but it's not. It's the corner of Holland up in that top. So the word hook in English is something you hang your coat on, but in Dutch it's corner. Then Paul goes on and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And he knew he believed the prophets. I know you do believe, says Paul to King Agrippa. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuaded me to become a Christian. How sad. 
And I've had people say exactly those same words to me. When you think about it, it was indeed incredible that such a man as our Lord Jesus Christ should appear to be defeated by death. From one point of view, the crucifixion of Jesus was a terrible crime. And Peter clearly expresses this in verse 23 when he said, You, looking at the crowd in front of him, you took him by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Peter couldn't have made it any clearer to them what they had done, what they had done. But from another point of view, it was a wonderful victory because in the very, very next verse, in verse 24, we read this, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was impossible that he should be held by death. Pains in this verse is referring, talking to birth pains. Jesus is raised out of the tomb. The tomb was a womb, if you like, out of which Jesus is born in resurrection glory. So Peter's first proof to the people in, the, in his congregation in front of him was the person of Jesus Christ himself. And Peter's second proof to the Jewish crowd was given again by Peter turning the congregation's attention back to the scriptures and this time to David. And it's interesting, I didn't know that Joe was going to speak on David this morning for the children's talk. Yes, he was king, but David was also a prophet. Because David talks about Jesus, and that's why David's words are reported here and quoted in Acts chapter 2. We know that these verses do not apply to David because David was dead and buried. And he says this, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in shale nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. David's body did see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David, being a prophet of God, wrote about the Messiah. That his soul would not remain in shale, the realm of the dead, or his body in the grave, where it would decay. And this is evidence from King David. These people liked King David. The Jewish nation likes King David. Thirdly, Peter brings to their attention the proof of the witness of the believers, verse 33. And after his resurrection, Jesus did not appear to the world at large, but to his own followers whom he had commissioned to give witness to others that he was alive, Acts 1, verse 3 and verse 22. So the question that we simply need to ask is were these witnesses dependable? Can we trust the words that they have said? Can we trust their word? If you go to a court case and the guy's trying to put together a defense, he's got to make sure that his witnesses are trustworthy because they will try and say they're not. And the answer that we have is an emphatic, yes, we can trust them. Prior to the resurrection, the disciples didn't even believe that Jesus would be raised from the dead. 
And they themselves had to be convinced of this. And Acts 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. The disciples needed to be convinced that Jesus was alive and that it was Jesus who stood before them. Now some might say this morning, what if I saw miracles right now? If I did see a miracle like that, then I too would believe. And I get people saying that to me all the time as well. Why is it that I don't see miracles? If I saw a miracle, I would believe. But you see, seeing miracles doesn't save you. Seeing people healed does not save you. It is only faith and belief in Jesus Christ that saves you. The disciples had nothing to be gained by preaching a lie because their message aroused official opposition and even led to imprisonment and death in some cases. I guess that you could say a few fanatics would be willing to believe and promote a lie for a time, but when thousands believe the message, and when that message is, uh, is backed up by miracles, you cannot easily dismiss it. The witnesses were trustworthy. And Peter's fourth proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was indeed the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is exciting, verses 33 to 35. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So follow Peter's logic very, very quickly here. If the Holy Spirit was in the world, then God must have sent him. Joel had promised that one day the Spirit would come and Jesus himself had promised to send the gift of the Holy Spirit to his people. Luke 24, 49, John 14, verse 26, John 15, verse 26, and Acts 1, verse 4. But if Jesus is dead, he cannot send the Spirit. Therefore, Jesus must be alive. Furthermore, he could not send the Spirit unless he had returned to heaven to his father, John 16, verse 7. So Jesus had ascended back to heaven. Now to back up this statement, Peter quoted Psalm 110 and verse 1. Again, he goes back to Scripture, a verse that certainly could not be applied to David. Peter's conclusion was both a declaration and an accusation. Jesus is your Messiah, but you crucified him notice that peter did not present the cross as the place where the sinless substitute died for the world but as the place where israel killed her own messiah peter explains that they had committed the greatest crime in history so did they have any hope yes there was hope because peter gave his third explanation that was good news to their hearts. Peter explained why the resurrection happened. What was it? To save sinners. Verses 36 to 41. And we look at those.